Chapter 13 of Genesis is a fascinating chapter in that at first glance it might look like that Abraham has once again put the promise in jeopardy. But upon further review, as they say, we'll find that once again Abram had exercised great faith and is back to, in chapter 13, walking in fellowship with God. In this chapter, chapter 13 of Genesis, we get a glimpse of what made Abram the model of spiritual maturity in the Pentateuch. It's, it's not a lack of failure that makes him mature. It's not a lack of failure that makes him great. It's what happens after his failure that sets Abram apart from so many other folks. So if you have experienced spiritual failure in life and are concerned that maybe you've messed up so badly that there's no spiritual future for you or no real probability that at the judgment seat of Christ you could ever receive one of those well-dones that we all want to, want to hear, then you might want to pay careful attention for the next 40 minutes or so. I suspect you might leave here this morning after having studied this passage encouraged. I certainly hope so. Look at verses 1 through 5 of Genesis 13. The text reads, So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev, he and his wife, and all that belonged to him, and Lot with him. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. And he went on his journeys from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, or Ai, to the place of the altar which he had made there formerly. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. Now Lot, who went with Abraham, or Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. The first verse of chapter 13 serves as a literary bookend, if you will, of Abram's account, the, the account of Abram's failure down in Egypt. Chapter 12, verse 10, read this way, So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there. And then in chapter 13, verse 1, So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev. Lot was Abram's nephew, the son of his brother Haran. Now this brother is not to be confused with the place that Abram has left. That's a city. And sometimes people have the same name as a city. But this, this man, Lot, is Abram's nephew. Lot's father, Haran, had died many years before. And apparently, since that time, this fellow, Lot, had become a part of the clan, a part of the family clan, first under the leadership of Terah, Abram's father and Lot's grandfather, and then eventually under the leadership of Uncle Abram. Lot is not mentioned in the previous account of Abram going down to Egypt because of the famine in the land. But it's almost certain that he was there. Now, Abram returned to the place where he had been previously spiritually victorious. In the last account, we saw Abram fall flat on his face. This man of great faith, this man who is lifted up in both the Old Testament and the New Testament as a person of faith, we saw him fall flat on his face and try to give up his wife as his sister so to, to save his own skin. And the fact that she really was his half-sister didn't make it any better. It was still a sin, and he failed greatly. But what's going to make Abram the mature believer that he was, and in, in, I don't think it's a wrong thing to use the word great when it comes to Abram, is that he didn't stop with his failure. We're going to see that in this chapter 
Now, Abram moved on after his failure, and that's one of the things that's going to make him great. So he returns to the place where he had been so spiritually victorious before. You re- recall on the way down from Haran, he stops in Shechem, and then in this little settlement between Bethel and Ai, and then he calls upon the name of the Lord, which we said he preached Yahweh in a pagan culture, in the middle of a pagan culture. That's why the last section surprises so much. To see him become so fearful after such a great spiritual victory, but it does happen. Now the text tells us that Abram was very rich. Not just rich, but but he was very rich. Abram was enriched by God in spite of his behavior in Egypt, not because of it. This is not a testament to bad behavior making you wealthy. But Abram was enriched by God in spite of that behavior. In, In a sense, he is a model of what's going to happen later to the Israelites. For when the Israelites left Egypt in the Exodus, they plundered the wealth of the Egyptians. And Abram predated that by quite a few hundred years. He plundered the wealth of Pharaoh, even though he was certainly walking out of fellowship at the time. The term me'od, the Hebrew term me'od is used here, just like it was used before, which means greatly. He was extremely wealthy. So he wasn't just wealthy, he wasn't just well off, he was meod wealthy, he was very wealthy. And as we learned in the last chapter, his wife, Sarai, wasn't just beautiful, she was meod beautiful. She was extremely beautiful. So we could say that Abram is not just a blessed man, he's a very blessed man, extremely blessed man. He had the money and had the girl both. I mean, that's, of course, it does seem to work that way sometimes, but well, that's a totally different subject. <laughs> Won't get me off track on that today. But it seems, though, at this point, Abram has left the failure of Egypt behind him. And it's a wonderful thing to observe. He has initiated a new beginning, or God has initiated it for him. You know, the truth of the matter is that from time to time, faithful believers fail. Mature believers sin. Now, I'm not advocating failure, and I'm not excusing sin. That's not the point here in this passage. But the reality is that no one, at least no one short of our Lord Jesus Christ, no one lives a life of perfection. No one does. But what we observe over and over again in Scripture is that the believer who is maturing in his or her faith will pick up and they'll move on after a failure. They don't stay in failure. They confess it, they repent of it, and then they progress, they move on. The worst thing that we can do when we fail is to engage in prolonged focus upon that failure. Yes, I messed up. I know it. God knows it. I've confessed it. I am forgiven. And now it's time to move on. This is one of the biggest problems that I personally observe in the spiritual life of many Christians that I encounter, particularly those that I counsel with. Huge problem. Far too many Christians spend their lives looking in the rearview mirror of that life. Now, if you drive a car and you never look in the rearview mirror you're probably going to have an accident. I know a lot of people that drive that way, or they certainly seem to drive that way on the Houston freeways. If you never glance up into the rearview mirror, there's a reason why it's there. 
There's a reason why those side mirrors are there too. So you can see what's behind you. So you need to glance up there every now and then. But if you drove your car looking exclusively in the rearview mirror, you're going to have an accident sooner than you would if, if you never looked in the rearview mirror. The point is that an occasional glance to see from which we've come is okay. It's healthy. But to spend all of our time spiritually looking in the rearview mirror of our failures is very unproductive spiritually. Now, this, in case you think I'm wandering down the, a road that you don't want to go down, this is not one of those think and grow rich or feel, you feel good, I feel good, you're okay, I'm okay. That's not one of these kind of sermons at all. There's a point that that's the point of this passage, though, that Abram picked up and moved on with God's help. He didn't wallow in his failure. Lance Armstrong, who is an incredible athlete from Austin, most of you know that name, who unfortunately at the present time is not a Christian in any sense of the imagination. We need to pray for him in that sense. But he nevertheless made this very interesting statement that I think fits the context of what we're speaking of here, at least in an athletic context. He said, pain is temporary. It may last a minute or an hour or a year, or a, year, a day or a year, but eventually it will subside and something else will take its place. If I quit, however, it lasts forever. And who can forget that, that run up the mountain a couple of years ago when he was way behind and he just, that photograph that was on the cover of Sports Illustrated, no one will ever forget that, where he's just, his face is intense and he's looking up the mountain. And he's right. If, if he'd have quit, it would have been over with. You can't quit in the, in the athletic realm, and you certainly can't quit in the spiritual realm either. Quitting does no good in either place. Now, for the believer, sin is a serious issue. I readily acknowledge that. None of us want to fail. But when we do, it does us no good to wallow in our failures. We all fail, but that doesn't mean we have to be failures. And the only way you're going to be a failure in the Christian life is if you stay down when you get knocked down. Now, I'm looking at an audience of people who have failed. And you're looking at a pastor who's failed. Okay, so now that we've got past that, maybe we could move on and glorify God with our lives. Never forget, I was at a college reunion one time. And I was sitting next to this lady who I knew. I, I didn't know her well, but I knew from the college days. And she just kept looking at me like this. Kind of looked me up and down, and, and I looked back at her and smiled, and she just, she, she stared. You know how people do that sometimes? It's unnerving when they do it. She just stared at me. And I, and I finally said, what? <laughs> and she said, I hear you became a pastor. <laughs> and I, I said, uh, I said, yeah, I did. I said, does that surprise you? And she said, well, yes, it does. <laughs> well, let's pick up, move on, and get past it. Let's go. Now, she hadn't come to the church yet. That's why I didn't use her name. Maybe she will someday. I doubt it. But we all fail. And if we wallow in the past, we're never going to go anywhere in the future. Yeah, you, you need to look in that rear view mirror occasionally. Just to see from what you come and to make sure you don't want to go that way again. That's true. 
But don't focus on that rearview mirror or you're going to wreck that car. And you're going to wreck your spiritual life. Both. Abram failed, but he got up. And he got back to the business of glorifying God with his life. Moses failed. David failed. Elijah failed. Peter failed. Paul failed. But they did not become entrenched in it. Every one of those names I've mentioned, we consider some of the greats of the Bible. And every one of them had some real serious failures in their life. So if you failed, take heart. Start from this particular moment and get back in fellowship with God. Confess that sin, turn away from it, and progress. And it's not excusing the sin, by the way. There may be some discipline that you have to pay. God, God may still spank you, even after you confess. There's no promise about that, by the way. That, it, that if you confess it, he's not going to spank you. You're, you're back in fellowship, but he still may have to spank you, so you don't do it again because he loves you. But let's observe Abram's recovery. Abram returns to Bethel, and again he calls upon the name of the Lord, just like he had done before. He worships and preaches Yahweh once again in the midst of this Canaanite culture. Again, he has gone back to the place of his spiritual victory, and he's spiritually victorious again. Then verse 5 reintroduces us to this man Lot, this nephew of Abraham, Abram, who will figure prominently over the next few chapters. Actually, we're in the first of the Lot narratives. It should be noted that Lot was also wealthy. Now, the wealth that he has is not described in the same way as his uncle Abram's wealth, but he was well off, as we would say. Now look at verses 6 and 7. And the land could not sustain them while dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to remain together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. Now the Canaanite and the Perizzite were dwelling in the land. These verses report that even though both men were wealthy, actually more accurately, because both men were wealthy. There were not enough natural resources available in that portion of the land to sustain both the clans of Abram and Lot. At least, if, if I understand this text correctly, by this time, Lot has developed his own clan. They lived in a patriarchal society. But it looks like Lot had significant wealth in and of himself, and he had developed his own clan, where people looked to him for Leadership, And then, of course, as happens from time to time, a, a, a conflict breaks out. It, it's the Hebrew term riv. It breaks out first between the herdsmen of Abram and Lot. And then it seems as though the tension must have overflowed to Lot and Abram themselves. And it didn't just stay with the herdsmen. And Abram doesn't want this for his family. He wants his family to get along. He doesn't want fighting. If you've been to Israel, and many of you have, and if not, you've read about it, and almost everybody has. If you've read the Bible, you've read about Israel. And you know how many times in the scriptures people get in quarrels and fights over water? It seems to come up over and over again. Israel's a very dry area. And assuming that there hasn't been a massive climate change from that time to this time, 
Uh, we, we can understand that it, is, it was relatively arid in most of those spots. And that's why settlements developed around places where springs would be or where the a river would, would provide certain water. And you need water to, have grow, to either grow crops or to graze livestock. And there's a limited amount of water in that land. Now this line here, now the Canaanite and the Perizzite were in the land in those days. It's not just a throw-in line. Because that land belongs to Abram, at least by divine decree. But there are other people living there, and then presumably, since they have much more strength than Abram at this point, they're occupying the best parts of the land. And so this creates the tension. Because of Abram and Lot's great wealth, they need to do something about this. There's not enough water for both of these clans. And so they argue over it. They struggle with it. And actually a derivative of this word, reeve, is used later on in Exodus chapter 17 when the Israelites themselves, about the time they got this book, were struggling over the circumstance of water at a place called Meribah. And actually in the middle of that is this word, Reeve. And they struggle so much. Remember, Moses comes and whacks the rock instead of speaking to the rock. And the rest is, is history. Moses doesn't get to go into the land. But at that point, they, the Israelites have strife, but it's not like this one. In this, in this sense, Abram and Lot are, and their employees are having strife. In Exodus 17, it's the Israelites who have strife with God. And that, of course, is a problem. You're going to lose that battle. It might have been a close battle between the herdsmen of Abram and the herdsmen of Lot, but it's no contest if you get into a battle of strife with God. So the Israelites reading this had to be, uh, cognizant that it was pointing to their own situation in, a, in an overflow type of way. Now let's see what the solution was. And this is a very wise solution on Abram's part. It's a solution of faith. Then Abram said in verse 8, Then Abram said to Lot, Please let there be no strife between you and me, nor between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we're brothers. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me, if to the left, and I'll go to the right. Or if to the right, then I'll go to the left. Now, what, let me insert one thing here. They're probably looking to the east. In, in our culture, we, we would always look to the north. But here they're looking to the east. When they say left and right, they're talking about going north or south. And Lot lifted his eyes, verse 10, and saw all the valley of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. This was before the Lord had destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as far as you go to Zohar. So Lot chose for himself all the valley of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed eastward. Thus they separated from each other. In verse 12, Abram settled in the land of, the, of Canaan, while Lot settled in the cities of the valley and moved his tents as far as Sodom. Then in verse 13, now the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly and sinners against the Lord. So here's the solution to the problem that Abraham, or Abram comes up with. Lot, you choose. I don't want to fight about this. You choose. Abram magnanimously offered Lot that which rightly belonged to him. By divine right, all that land belonged to him. But Abram, in this incredible gesture of generosity, they're up there looking from a high place. He said, you pick. You pick. And Abram's not afraid to do that. Why is he not afraid to do that? Because he knew that God was with him. A very important phrase in the book of Genesis. He's with him. He's not just with him in the sense of omnipresence, but a special hand of blessing is upon him. He had been given these promises. 
He's been blessed in Egypt, even though he was a total failure in Egypt. This is a man who is not intimidated by his circumstances. He's not intimidated by letting Lot choose. Now, it's the same principle that Paul speaks of in the New Testament. If God's for you, who can be against you? So Abram's considered God's for me. I can't lose, no matter what this selfish nephew of mine chooses. I can't lose. Now, here's where some feel that Abram was a bit rash and put the promise in jeopardy. But I respectfully disagree with her. It was a promise. And Abram is walking in fellowship with God at this time. There's no indication in the text that he's doing anything but that. So Abram has nothing to fear. God will work all of this out. There's no indication that Abram is in a failure here. Quite the opposite. This is a moment of spiritual success for him. This is a high point. Now, whether God influenced Lot's choice or not, we can't say. I don't think so. I think this was just selfishness on Lot's point, but that's really not the point. Here's the point. Abram trusted God to work out his glory. And I feel confident that as they're looking out at that land and Lot is making his choice, Abram's pulse was not racing as he waited for Lot to make the decision. I don't think it was at all. I think Abram at this point is totally confident that God's going to work it out because his focus is upon God. He knows what the promise is and he knows who God is, the one who made the promise. He doesn't have to have anxiety about this. Lot's, Lot is selfish. Granted, but Lot's selfishness is not going to injure Abram if it's God's choice to bless Abram. I get that. Lot's selfishness is not going to injure Abram if God's on Abram's side. God blesses Abram in spite of Lot's selfishness. On a personal note, I've encountered this in ministry from time to time. An opportunity will come up, and you say, well, we'll pray about that opportunity. If the Lord wants us to do it, then that's fine. If he doesn't want us to do it, that's fine. And sometimes you think, well, that that seems like something that the Lord would want me to do. And then then a third party comes up and and seems to knock it off its horse. Now, you have a choice at that point. I, I do. You do, too, when these kind of things happen in your life as well. Do I get really angry with the person who came up? And Do I get really angry with the lot of that situation? Uh, do I say, Father must not have wanted me to do that. My Heavenly Father must not have wanted me to be there at that particular time, in that particular place, or working with that particular ministry. I remember there was a, there was a church in the northwest part of the country. I, I won't name the particular location because I hold no hard feelings against them whatsoever. But way, way back, this was 20 years ago almost, I guess, Something like that. I was in conversation with them about maybe pastoring at that particular church. And the conversation was, was great. I mean, everything was just going as perfectly as it could possibly go. And it seemed like a pretty good fit in, in a lot of different ways. And then an individual who had nothing to do, really, with the process, didn't even attend that church, came in and torpedoed the, uh, the whole process for, for reasons that were absolutely petty. And it had nothing to do with the, the process itself. And I remember at the time thinking, what a jerk. <laughs> what a jerk to do something like that. 
But then a better moment took over, and I thought, well, you know, God must not want me at that particular place. It seemed like a great fit for me, but he must not have wanted me to do that. Now, almost two decades later, I can look back and I see, I thank God he didn't put me there. I, I thank God every day he put me here with you. Now, you may not be thankful. You may be saying, golly, I wish I'd talk to who that guy was. <laughs> but anyway, I mean, it's, but you know what? God had other plans. And this man's rudeness that came in and torpedoed this thing is not going to alter the blessing of God because if God's for us, who can be against us? And that's what Abram is thinking here. He's not intimidated by whatever choice Lot could make. Now, all of us encounter those kind of situations from time to time. We really do. And we get, we get, the tendency is to get so upset at people who come in and seem to torpedo what we believe is God's will in our lives. Don't get upset with them. God can handle it. Thank you very much. And that person wouldn't have been the, able to torpedo it had God not allowed it. You see, that's the point. And that's what Abram recognized. Now, one quick thing here, as we're running out of time, there, there were some ominous signals to the reader of this text. I hope you picked them up in verse 10. The, the land that Lot chooses, the land of Sodom and Gomorrah, this was, those who were reading this for the first time already knew what had happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. He, he says in verse 10, like the land of Egypt as far as you go to Zoar. Zoar is not a real popular place. The word Zoar means little. But Zoar is the place that Lot and his daughters flee to upon the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. So that's kind of a big red flag to them there as well. And then in verse 13, in case we didn't remember, just to remind us ahead of time, now the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly and sinners against the Lord. The text is telling us that Lot made a bad choice. You know what Lot should have done? He should have said, Uncle Abram, I defer to you. What do you choose? Sir, I defer to you. You're my elder. But in selfishness, he doesn't do that. Now, in verses 14 through 18, as the chapter concludes, read along with me. And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him. After Lot had separated. That's why some people look at this passage and they equate Lot with this mixed multitude that came out in, in the Exodus. I don't know if we can do that for sure, but, but Lot had to leave before this second giving of the, what some call the Palestinian covenant. And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are. Apparently he's at a high place at this point. Northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land which you see, I will give to you and to your descendants forever. Very pertinent in some of the discussions today. I will give to you and your descendants forever. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth. So that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be numbered. Arise, walk about the land through its length and breadth, for I will give it to you. And then in verse 18, then Abram moved his tent and came and dwelt by the oaks of Mamre, which are in Hebron, about 22 miles south of Jerusalem, which are in Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. Everywhere he goes, he worships. Everywhere he goes, he worships. God in this section repeats the promise that he gave to Abram. And his descendants, or that he would have descendants. He's going to have all the land. He, his descendants would enjoy all the land that Abram could see. And in, in case you're wondering, in, in the time of Abram, actually throughout the whole of the patriarchs and most of the Old Testament, uh, let's say we're 
I don't think you can do this, but let's say we're at the top of the Transco Tower on an extremely clear day. Now, this may not be the best of illustrations, but on an extremely clear day, and I can see all the way down to Fort Bend County, and I can see all the way up to Montgomery County. Now, I might not be able to see the end of Fort Bend County, and I might not be able to see the other side of Montgomery County, but if I could see the border of Harris County and Fort Bend or Harris County and Montgomery, in biblical times, they would say, you've seen Fort Bend County. You see the point? Or you've seen Montgomery County. So anything that even saw the border of, and I'm sure it's a little more clear than it is today. This was what was promised to Abram. This is the third revelation that God's given to Abram. And it contains three specifics as we close. Abram's heir would be his own seed. This is going to be very critical for something Abram does later. Abram's heir is going to be his own seed. Presumably the idea would be the seed between he and his wife, Sarai. That's verses 15 and 16. Verse 15, also, God would give the land to Abram and his descendants forever. Don't miss that. Then in verse 16, Abram's descendants would be innumerable. So the chapter ends as we would have expected it to for a man walking in faith. It ends with worship. Worship is the response to revelation. And Abram has received this incredible revelation. A revelation we're going to study more when I return from India. But this incredible revelation, the normal, the the appropriate response is worship. Abram could be generous with Lot without fear of losing that which God had promised to him. Lot's selfishness is not going to take one ounce of blessing away from Abram, provided God is on Abram's side. Few chapters in the Bible, in my opinion, describe faith so wonderfully. The relaxed attitude of a man of faith. Lot, walking by sight, chose on the basis of what appealed to his eyes. His choice was self-seeking. It was self-gratifying. And it was also, as we already know, because we know how this story is going to end, it was also a dangerous choice. For the land of Sodom and Gomorrah was not all it seemed to be on the surface. Abram, on the other hand, walking by faith, generously let Lot choose first. Abraham was unselfish. Abram trusted God. One who truly trusts God to do the best for him or her will find it totally unnecessary to be greedy, to be anxious, Or to be envious. Abram failed greatly at the end of chapter 12. We all recognize that. But he got up and he got back to the business of glorifying God with his life. Abram failed. But he did not become a failure. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the model of Abram. We're humbled by it. Because everyone in this room... All of us collectively, and I pray for all of us right now, all of us know that we've failed, and we know how badly we've failed, how badly we've sinned, how badly we've offended your holiness in the past. And we thank you that you're a God who will forgive us. And not look the other way at it. We're not, we're not saying that, and, I, and we recognize that, Father, but you do forgive us because of the finished work of Christ on the cross. Now help us, help those of us who need to, to pick up and move on, not dwelling on past failures but focusing upon our Lord Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. And it's in his name that we'll ask it. 
Amen.